0: focus into being just a, a yacht racer and I wanted to chat to, to Peter about his thoughts and during this meeting he pointed out the window and pointed it at, at what was then Cousteau's Antarctic Explorer uh, became Seamaster he said Alistair you're the right kind of guy do you want to start work on Monday for me Yeah, I'd, I'd probably be dead. The, the the training suggested capitulate. The training told us if someone gets on board, you do everything you're told to do. And the, the four people that that didn't act that way, some of the biggest heroes in my life, they all suffered the the worst wrath from the from the attackers. If you can sail around New Zealand you'll see worse weather and worse sea conditions doing that than you would in your average passage from here to the islands. We are spoilt for our training ground. New Zealand can offer so much. Um, uh, A a calm sea never created a a great sailor.
1: Hi everyone and welcome along to Broadreach Radio, the Yachting New Zealand podcast. My name is Michael Brown and today we talk to Alistair Moore, who is probably best described as a sailing adventurer. He was a member of Sir Peter Blake's team on Blake Expeditions who sailed aboard Seamaster performing important environmental work and was in the Amazon in 2001 when Peter Blake was killed by pirates. Alistair talks about how he was invited to join Blake Expeditions and the joy of working with his childhood hero for two years as well as that ill-fated trip up the Amazon and what he was doing at the time of the attack. He also talks about his determination to try to continue the work Peter Blake was doing and how it brought him to work with the NZ Sailing Trust on board Blake's old boats, Lion New Zealand and Steinlager 2. And he explores the similarities he sees in Peter Burling and Blair Chuuk and the environmental work they are doing. Alistair likes, as he says, playing boats, having also worked at an America's Cup and in places like Oman, and has amassed over 300,000 nautical miles at sea. He was supposed to be setting off this year on a journey to sail around the world with his wife, Sarah Jane, who happens to be Peter Blake's daughter, but that's now on hold due to COVID-19. We covered a lot of territory in this podcast, so I hope you enjoy. Alistair Moore, welcome to the show. Thanks thanks for having me along. Well, it's great to have you. Um, now, I talked a little bit about your background in the introduction, um, but I wondered if Sailing Adventurer best summed you up. How would you describe yourself and your, I guess, sailing career and association with sailing?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's funny because it, it's never really been a career or an act of choice. It's just sort of been a the opportunities that have come up and the ones that you've jumped on along the way have sort of steered the course of, 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 of the next decision, as it were. But yeah, a, a sailor, a person that loves being on the water and at sea, and if, if he can turn the engine off and um, make headway, he's very happy.
1: <laughs> so why do you think you're wired this way and your, your happy place is probably a few, a few miles offshore?
0: Yeah, it's it's an odd one. It's um, I mean I I grew up on Herald Island, sort of the upper reaches of um, of the Waitamata Harbour, and from a very early age, sorry, <clears throat> from a very early age, just was fascinated by everything that floated, and um, yeah, every opportunity to uh, to be on the water. This is from sort of two or three or four years old. I would I would jump at and the you know, bunk off school to play boats. Um, obviously dodge as much homework as possible to, to sail my optimist. Dad obviously saw a, a passion and as a six-year-old got me an optimist. So I was pretty early getting out on the water by myself. And um, yeah, I guess those early early um, memories of knocking around mudflats and um, and mangroves uh, and being independent, choosing your, your own adventure and choosing your own sort of path. Can we get through that little gap? and learning the the consequences when you get it wrong but doing it from an early age in a, in a time well, I, may, I guess people still do it but maybe not to the same frequency as, as they did when I was growing up.
1: Now of course uh, kids listening out there we don't advocate bunking off school so stay in school.
0: <laughs> definitely, definitely.
1: <laughs> um, But, Alistair, you're probably best known for your work with Sir Peter Blake and the Blake Expeditions um, on Seamaster. Um, So just specifically, how did that role come about?
0: Yeah, being in the right place at the right time. I was uh, running a photo boat for Bruno Troublay and the Louis Vuitton media uh, uh, service that was um, running during the first America's Cup in New Zealand. And Pippa Blake would... um, would frequently come out with me to watch the racing and to get back because I had a fast boat, uh, which, so she could get back in time to pick the kids up from school. Um, so uh, that was I, I asked Pippa one day if, if she would mind asking her husband if I could have a chat to her to him uh, regarding uh, a job opportunity in France and more more you know specifically a a, a career advice. Um, I. I I had obviously raced a lot as a a younger man and and had done the youth training program. But at that stage in my life, I had sort of thought that yacht racing, although I loved it, it wasn't the be all and end all. I didn't want to put all my focus into being just a a yacht racer. And I wanted to chat to, to Peter about his thoughts. And during this meeting, he pointed out the window and pointed at, at what was then Cousteau's Antarctic Explorer, uh, became Seamaster. He said, Alistair, you're the right kind of guy. Do you want to start work on Monday for me? Um, it was out of the blue. It, 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 it levelled me. I never, ever thought I would be working for my childhood hero. But at 21, 22, just, yeah, just after my 22nd birthday, Pete said, come and work for me. And, yeah, it was um, to talk about life-changing, it, it, you know, this... I, yeah, I'd never ever thought I would be going to Antarctica with my childhood hero and um, doing cool stuff. So, yeah, that, that meeting um, really did uh, change the trajectory of, of what I thought work was. And, um, yeah, and, and it hasn't been pale since, but certainly working under a leader such as Sir Peter uh, proved, you know, showed firsthand how effective a, a strong team can be
1: And what were you employed to do with Peter? You know as I started
0: as the boy I was the the deck hand um, started with the uh, all the horrible work, you know cleaning bilges and um, um, a Deck gear maintenance uh, obviously had been around sailing boats, but it was all huge all this gear was so foreign to me coming from you know a, a smaller boat kind of background and um yeah so it was a it was learning on the job i was lucky enough to have really good crew around me to learn off um sean kelly was the engineer when i started and he was uh, you know i just followed him around and learned, learned the systems of the boat we had seven months in auckland doing a refit um after uh, 10 new- years well just before team new zealand defended the cup and then um Yeah, we we took off uh, early in the new year uh, across the Southern Ocean. Um, My first, well, it was my second ocean crossing. I'd sailed up to Fiji once before, but, you know, that was only a delivery wasn't racing. This was a a proper adventure for four weeks at sea, uh, down to, you know, 60 degrees south. Some proper proper Southern Ocean weather, but on a on a boat like Seamaster, we were very spoiled. It was like taking a uh, a ski lodge to sea, um, very 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 comfortable and warm and dry and and a, a very good galley. So compared to to Peter's previous uh, laps, he was he was um, just in heaven, thinking that it was the best thing. Obviously, not fast sailing, but uh, very safe and comfortable and and awe-inspiring to be around those huge rollers that that charge around the Southern Ocean in such a safe, strong vessel. It was a phenomenal first big passage for me. Um, look back at it with the the fondest of memories. And um, yeah, so that, that that one chance meeting, obviously I had the gumption to, to ask Lady Pippa if, she, if she'd hit up her husband for some young Kiwi to have a chat with. But uh, yeah, because of that. One conversation with Peter, my life went from probably a you know very commercial orientated marine life to a far more adventurous, far more um, uh, bigger, I guess. Just rather than thinking about me, made me think about others more. And um, yeah, haven't looked back. Wouldn't wouldn't change it.
1: So you, you talked about um, Peter Blake being a childhood hero of yours. So was he did he sort of live up to your uh expectations you know was he the guy that you had in your mind it's it's funny I get that asked that one yeah he as as a
0: child and watching him you know from Saramco days I was a five year old and then lion and then Steinlager and then Enza. Uh, then the cup the first cup in 95 that we won obviously the cup before that 92 with the red boats I've always seen him on TV or you know heard him on the radio uh, My father had you know, obviously met him a couple of times at different yacht club things and things and always spoke very highly of him as a as a person in person and then <clears throat> spending two years Living on Seamaster with him there 90% of the time you really get to know a person and there were times when i would disagree with his as the way he handled the situation and then a week a day sometime later the reason why he was acting that way or the way he de- dealt with that situation that way would become clear so I, over time those two years um he surpassed my expectations um you know i was a a, a doting fan when i first met him and by the end of it had nothing but respect for um, a person that basically became a, 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 a very much a father figure to me.
1: So you, you headed off towards Antarctica, um, hitting that that 60 degrees you were talking about, and you did go down to Antarctica. What was the aim of the mission?
0: Yeah, well, Blake Expeditions um, had a had a wonderful mission statement, or or, or you know, raise on debt reason for being, and it was basically to get your average you know person doesn't matter where they're from in the world but to get them to fall in love with the environment to feel a part of it he was well we were trying very hard not to baffle people with science or numbers and certainly not be negative i mean he was so far ahead of his time he wanted to create change through an emotional engagement and with us as basically spokespeople or uh, people that went around and found the touchstones, the things that uh, connected us all and um, the systems that we maybe weren't quite aware of and how they are all dovetailing together to, to maintain an equilibrium and yeah it was so we were we had a two and a half month window where we got down to the across Drake Passage and down to Esperance at the top of the Antarctic Peninsula, uh, we dropped off some kayakers there who were the first uh, first kayakers in the world to paddle down to the um, the Arctic Circle. Good Kiwi lads. So Blakey gave them a lift down, and then we followed our nose as far south as we could down the Antar- uh, the east coast of the Antarctic Peninsula, and came across amazing sights. I must say, sailing in Antarctica isn't great it's either glass calm or 50 plus with chunks of ice in the wind so we did a lot of motoring in Antarctica but there was um, it was some great lessons learned ice navigation and uh, 24 hours of daylight and wildlife that has not been corrupted by mankind where you get emperor penguins will walk a mile and a half to come and stand right next to you to work out what you are it was um, a phenomenal two and a half months down there and we got pushed out by the, the sea starting to freeze behind us. So it was a, a bit of a leave now we'll spend the year sort of thing Um had a, had a, had a good proper Cape Horn experience on our way back from Antarctica. But we produced about uh, close on 10 hours of television down there and that all went through a, a, an international uh, a production house. Uh, and after that experience, I think Peter went. Okay, I think we need to get more control over the stories we tell. And up the Amazon, he had taken on a, a far smaller production company, but to have more control over the the end product. Obviously, the the Amazon expedition came to a tragic end. Um, yeah, at uh, that time in Antarctica, cutting well, we were all cutting our teeth in ice navigation there. Uh, Peter had never, you know, pushed a, a boat through through sea ice before. Obviously, being a racing sailor, it's um, not fast. Uh, but yeah, to, to have that experience and to, um, you know, to be up, you know, roused at four in the morning by your childhood hero to come and fend off a hundred ton iceberg as it bears down on our anchor warp—all of those things will will stay very, hopefully, stay very clear in my mind uh, for the rest of my days because. Uh, yeah, it's certainly. When you're in those situations that require a team, and you have a leader like Peter and, and people that have been together for a year or so, um, yeah, certainly those challenges come up, and they're um, they're knocked over with uh, with very efficient thought processes and um, and you know attention to detail. And, and being part of that was um, yeah a huge, huge, hugely satisfying part of my life.
1: Yeah, you talked about that um, you sailed up to uh, Buenos Aires and I think you had a refit there, headed to Brazil and the Amazon. Um, so was there a different sort of purpose to this part of the expedition?
0: Yeah, I think with, our, with the, the time in Antarctica, Blake Expeditions and, and Peter and the team were finding their feet and how they were going to tell the story and get the message out. Um, and then, so so th- this is all developing along the along the way as we go, obviously on, on deliveries and things. We're learning new skills, and and when we got to the Amazon, uh, we had Peter had engaged a uh, big way pictures, a small production house out of out of England, and they became you know bought in more to the the whole backstory. Uh, wasn't quite as. Um, uh big bbc kind of thing where it was more of a a family and trying very hard to focus everything around the message of um it's not doom and gloom we need all need to pitch in basically
1: so when you re- reached uh Meneas, i think uh, about f- 1500 kilometers from the ocean you re- headed up uh what was it the rio negro until it got too shallow for Seamaster to go any further. So what what was the plan next? What did you guys do next?
0: Yeah, so basically the, we were trying to do a, a, a loop, um, take Seamaster as far up the Rio Negro as we felt safe, and then a small group of us were going to get into local dugout uh, canoes and um, a Zodiac small inflatable and continue up the Rio Negro and then enter in, the Casa Quarry, And that flows through to the Orinoco. So when the small boat team left, Seamaster would turn around, head back down the Rio Negro, back down the Amazon, out into the Atlantic, and then come up and around, up into Venezuela and up the Orinoco and collect the small boat team. And uh, when we entered the Amazon down, you know, at um, just Belem, Peter pulled me aside and said, Alistair, uh you've got two options um i'd like to keep you here on board as the engineer um but if you would like i also need someone to go into the jungle with a small boat team and do the communications so it would be my job if i took that to um you know dial up the satellite um every evening and send out the information or the 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 content that we'd created uh photos a little bit of writing and we we didn't have the technology to send any um any moving pictures back then this is uh 2000, 2000 or 2001 obviously and um so yeah basically just updating the team of what was going on uh we were we were specifically looking for illegal forestry activity or illegal mining activity because the area we were in was a biosphere reserve um, United Nations uh, natural heritage uh, s- a place of significance a huge huge area of prote- so supposedly protected land and we came across obviously uh, in- indigenous tribes fishing for their, for their for their families and that was all cool but we did come across illegal mining operations which were just raping and pillaging the environment you know sluicing mercury laden water down the hillside and horrible things like that, Um, yeah, and then up until, you know, obviously every day we were off the boat for four weeks and then on that that horrible day, the 5th of December, um, I I phoned the the boat after I'd sent the emails, um, which was standard protocol and got no answer and found that very bizarre. So then called the second number, which was the production company in the UK and and they or the the, the the lady there on the other end of the line gave us the um, hot, Shocking news what had happened with the uh, Seamaster at the at the mouth at in uh, Macapa the mouth of the Amazon uh, just shock and disbelief um, Yeah, and then and then came the saga of, of myself and Ollie who was uh, the dive master we were both in the jungle and with peter dead and don robinson not on board the boat anymore there was no insurance so uh, ollie and myself had to get back to the boat as quickly as possible which was yeah three and a half day massive massive effort to get us back to the boat
1: i'll explore that a little bit more i just want to take you back a little bit just the the previous month um you wrote in a diary entry uh, in november 2001 um, that you were excited but a little bit anxious about the next four to six weeks but would not trade places with anybody uh, at this moment in time. You know, what were you anxious about? What were you excited about?
0: Well, it was it was basically going where very few people get to go up into this remote part of the Amazon jungle. Uh, sort of a, a boyhood adventurer's dream, something I never thought would come true. And when Peter mentioned the you know if you want to go in this the small boat uh team there's a position there for you i don't think i waited more than three seconds to to answer him um and and through that decision uh, peter then called my father <laughs> so dad came in and joined the boat to take my position as engineer so that by the time we'd gotten to um, just past manaus i got off onto the the, the small boat um, team and my father's Roger stayed with Seamaster and continued my duties there so I'm very spoilt to have a one well, to have picked up some of my father's engineering skills uh,
1: sorry well
0: just focus me again
1: <laughs> so I, I you know the fact that your dad was on board too because you, you mentioned this um, this phone call that you had with the production team and the news that that you just received you know, I guess, how do you react? Because not only was Peter you to- being told that he'd been killed, but your father was on board. You know, what sort of, you know, you're racing trying to get information about him as well?
0: No, definitely. And and back in that time, in the parts of the world we were in, communication was, was limited, uh, especially with the boat being um, compromised and the people on board that knew the systems not being there. Uh, begin you know in the beginning before we even got to the Amazon you know we had had many many crew discussions about um, uh, how how we're opening ourselves up to you know to all these risks and how parts of the Amazon and parts of um, certainly the Orinoco and uh, Colombia have a have a reputation for um, you know some pretty pretty evil things happening uh, and we were, through all of our briefings and plannings, we were all, always far more um, cautious or apprehensive about what the small boat team would come across or the situations they may have to deal with, because of their proximity to um, FARC, who were uh, a, a bunch of horrible people who were defending um, drug traffickers' uh, uh, access ways. So we felt through all our plannings that the small boat people would be more at risk and the the big boat Seamaster would be a hard target for an opportunist, you know, would have to be a very well organised and and very courageous group of people that would want to take on a hard target like that. So all of our planning, we had an ex-Navy SEAL as part of the small boat group yeah you know, th- there was there was a lot of energy put into thinking about the security of people and 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 and, and planning for it and, and training for it um, I wasn't there when the obviously I was in the jungle when the the river pirates or whatever you want to call them boarded seamaster and and did what they did um, there's it, not a day that goes you know, I go where I don't think if, if I'd been on board, would something have been different? Could I have diffused the situation? Would it have been a rugby match? Would I, you know, would I have suffered the same fate as Peter? Who knows? But it's it's that question that you always run through your head, you know, would would me having been there uh, change the outcome of the situation?
1: I'm guessing, you know, having played it through your mind so often, what do you think you might have done?
0: Well, luckily, luckily, being tight mates with everybody that was there, and, and to this day, um, yeah, I'd, I'd probably be dead. Um, because the the, the the training suggested capitulate. The training told us if someone gets on board, you do everything you're told to do. And the, the four people that, that didn't act that way, you know, um, some of the biggest heroes in my life They all suffered the the worst wrath um, From the from the attackers. So yeah, who knows probably I wouldn't be here to have this conversation with you If I was still there. Yeah, if if that rugby playing pack mentality um, uh, Rush of blood to the head, I don't know if you've yet, you get Know if that had been there, but then equally could have been a power well, i did know a little bit of portuguese i could have been the peacemaker who knows
1: quite sobering isn't it very much so were you angry were you devastated what sort of emotion a couple of days afterwards
0: yeah a couple yeah, uh, emotional de- definitely i I'm, it t- t- took me three and a half days to get back to the boat after peter was shot and uh, ollie didn't make it because of a visa issue so on my last little flight from Belém across to Manaus, I was waiting at the airport and um, just broke down in tears. Um, You know, I had probably been awake for three days and um, racked with emotion um, and then flew across the the Amazon and and my father had come straight out of hospital and met me at the airport and we both went to the boat and picked the anchor up straight away. we had cleared customs the boat had cleared customs I just needed a stamp in my passport and away we went uh, uh to, to get out of there um to get the boat away, away from from where it all happened uh, I was um yeah, detached uh it felt uh, eerily like um marshmallow walking on marshmallow everything hazy everything dulled um the, 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 sail from, from Manaus, sorry, from Macapa up to Tobago was very cathartic. Um, I think we, we must've sailed through a, uh, an, a, there was one evening where we must've had more than 120 shooting stars and there was all these natural wonders going on. Um, it was a, yeah, very, very cathartic, very inward time. Um, I had the, this this huge, huge passion and burning fire inside me to to keep it going, to keep Blake Expeditions um, at the forefront, as it were. Uh, but on on getting back to New Zealand, and um, yeah, the the whole surreal travel back to New Zealand, and then a day later, the the memorial service at the um, War Memorial. Museum What a huge day that was with so many people out mourning And um, yeah, and then a chance meeting with some some of peter's good friends From team new zealand days and earlier that summer uh, convinced me that without peter The the uh, financial side of Blake it, it just couldn't happen without peter's um Charismatic leadership and contacts his ability to to get people like Omega and Toyota and many others to to sign on to something that um, Is inherently good
1: for, for someone who was so passionate about continuing it then how much it was a blow was that for you personally?
0: Massive um, yeah, and, and w- without an invite from um, a gentleman named Etienne Bourgois to come and help him, because he, his eyesight was failing, to come and help him and his family go sailing for a, for a summer holiday on his boat in France. Without that, to, uh, yeah, I think I would have been a little bit lost. So to, to get taken out of New Zealand, to go and hang out with a French family and go sailing in, in you know very relaxed um cruising kind of uh, environments w- was it was a, a a great two months and then off the back of that suddenly I'm plugged into some match racing so uh, uh, all my not full circle but through weird contacts and what well, no through good old friends and and opportunities coming up um, you know I Jess Grand Hansen a Danish match racer asked me to join his His team for the 2002 uh, Swedish match cup, which was the world match racing series back then And so yeah the, the sailing was was what Where the where the energy went Um, I felt after the season on the tour That just going yacht racing probably wasn't good enough. My my original feeling after, you know after the the youth skiing was i love it but it's it needs to be more um and then etienne bought sea master it was such a strange strange situation but pippa called me we would speak once every couple of months and um yeah 2004 three end of 2003 she called me and i happened to be sitting next to etienne and She said, Alistair, do you know anybody that would buy Seamaster but keep doing what Peter was doing with it? And I went, funnily enough, Pippa, I do. And I passed the phone to Etienne, and a week later, we'd gone and visited the boat in Newport, Rhode Island. And he said, yep, we'll have it. So he bought it off Pippa for what Peter had bought it off, the Custosis Foundation. So it was a beautiful, um, genteel deal. Um, No brokerage fees, none of that kind of stuff. And Etienne bought the boat. I helped him um, with another refit on it because it had been sitting for some time. And and Tara, the uh, Tara Foundation was born, and the boat continues to do, you know, world-leading cool stuff.
1: you're not wrong about uh, going full circle. Um, I wouldn't mind just sort of taken a couple of steps back in this this journey of yours um because obviously the the peter blake legacies you know continue to play uh, a big part in your life um so we'll, we'll let's look at that a little bit later on but um i thought it'd be useful um to let people know sort of how you got to this place a little bit more um and what your involvement with sailing through those sort of early and and in youth sort of uh, days was was like um now i was doing a wee bit of research on you and there's a story that cropped up that at your 21st your dad told a story about how you were conceived on a cruising yacht and that you were only two weeks old when you first went away on a boat so look i'm guessing that boats are pretty much etched in every memory of your childhood there is
0: yeah certainly not not far from it um yeah, Dad had a a, a cruising boat he'd, he'd built when he was in his 20s. Um, and we lived on the water's edge, really fortunate. So, yeah, sail, sailing was, or messing around in boats, but sailing in particular as a boy was everything. So I was a member of the Herald Island Boat Club uh, from about the age of six. Uh, but then through schoolmates, uh, Dan Slater, a good high school friend, uh, convinced me at, I think, the age of 11, I should really be doing... Some more competitive sailing, so come across to Murray's Bay and let's get your P class up to speed. Uh, by this time, sailing in a P, and um, yeah, that was that was a, a, an eye opener to go from knocking around um, at sort of uh, the marks as they're laid to sailing proper windward lewards and seeing how competitive people get at, at with mark roundings. And there was an eye opener coming from You know what I felt a little bit countrified maybe. Um, and then the the hard fast and heavy world of, of Murray's Bay. I did two seasons there with the p-class uh, But was growing quite I was quite a a big adolescent I guess so yeah at, at 13 I was 60 kilos and the, so the p-class was gone and it was a decision whether it was a starling or do I go straight to a laser? And it was actually my father that suggested well, what about keelboats? It doesn't have to be a dinghy and uh there was a, a reasonably reasonably sorry-looking um, Jim lidgard designed plywood quarter-tonner, multi-chine, that was up the creek at Greenhithe, and the guy had a four-sale sticker on it. So I tracked him down and offered him uh, the little money I had, uh, an old Nissan C20 van, and a beach cat that my good friend had thrown into the deal, and lo, the guy took the deal. So we were blown away. We had our first little keelboat, and we raced that with Clearwater Cove and went cruising in it as a fifteen-year-old, sixteen-year-old. I sailed it all the way to Hahei and then up to Omaha via Barrier. Um, so the keelboat was great experience. Not as much racing, but good for the seamanship side of things. And then Dan Slater putting more pressure on me said, "You should really go and have a chat to Harold Bennett. I think some you you would get a lot out of the youth scheme run by the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron." So a fifteen-year-old boy turned up on Harold's doorstep and said, "This is me. Don't have a huge amount of racing experience, but light boats." And Harold said, "Yes, there's there's a place for you here." And yeah, two days of every yeah every every weekend for two years you were committed to it and harold was the best coach because he didn't suffer fools lightly and He called a spade a spade so you knew when you had it right and you knew when you had it wrong So it was it was a good learning environment and I grew up with guys like through the scheme cameron appleton and andrew escort and kyle gunderson uh, yeah, To name a few there's a bunch of legends that came through with me and Yeah, when you when you're sailing with People that are, well, when you're doing anything with people that are better than you, your skill level comes up quickly. And the two years in the in the youth scheme certainly, um, you know, I'm very, very, very fortunate to have had that time and to, to, to have been able to commit to that much of a of a undertaking. It's not not for everybody, but uh, it certainly put me in good stead further in life when it comes to making a boat sail properly.
1: What do you think, you know, you, you said you came out of that. Thinking, I needed more. I want more. You know, at most sort of sixteen-year-olds are probably thinking, "How can I make a boat go faster? And how can I turn this um, into a career as a as a as a race?" So, why do you think you had a thought, different thought process, maybe to some others out there?
0: Well, I'm not sure. I mean, i are it's, it's not a huge family, but um, you know, the, certainly my mother puts other people first. Um, it's this thing that we're all in this together and um, I'm Fortunate you know, I went to a, a good high school and and had a very good you know, for a very expensive education But the, the the whole you know finding motivation and the bottom line um, in, 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 in earning a, a fat paycheck I've always have found a, a, a hollowness and um, and I've always uh, found far more uh, enjoyment out of helping someone else succeed it's kind of uh, coaching uh, teaching somebody a new skill i i seem to from an early age you get a, get a kick out of seeing someone have the penny drop or the the light bulb go on so um yeah it's just it is the way i'm wired um i've always been motivated by the adventure or or the the building a team to tackle a problem um, and and that's probably because I've, I've come from a not quite golden spoon, but because my parents had you know a, a solid income, I never worried about money. And you know, I look at friends that have come from from a harder working or, or less less fortuitous backgrounds and how they really work for the for the for that paycheck because you know that's a measure of success and I don't quite see it like that some people do some people see you know the bigger your bank account the more successful you obviously are but yeah that's n- not my way of, of measuring success it's it comes down to uh, I don't know a warm fuzzy feeling which is a terrible unquantitative way of doing it but if you derive um, yeah, a, a pleasure and enjoyment or, or fulfillment from something that's helping someone else, I think you're winning.
1: So is that um, mindset, is that kind of what prompted you to get your commercial Launch Masters ticket?
0: Uh, Probably probably more selfish than that. i had been, so I I studied outdoor education um, and my first job straight out of uh, university was running a a rock climbing centre at the Birkenhead War Memorial Leisure Centre and teaching people to rock climb. and it was, it was only six, six weeks into that job that I realized that I was happiest at sea. So if I could earn my money at sea, I would be happy. The commercial ticket was, I mean, I didn't want to go and drive a ship. I didn't want to drive a ferry, but I felt I needed... Um, a, a license or a, a a mark of of this is how much experience or this is what skill level this person has um a, a <clears throat> to, to be a professional mariner to, to be someone at, at on the ocean at sea that's um and that, that has those seafaring skills um i i i, I felt that I, I was naturally pretty good at it but it was more it was more selfish it was more of the I wanted to be at sea, especially as a younger, younger man. It's obviously different when you have family and different commitments. But um, yeah, after my time at university, I realized that, yeah, the the university time was good and and learning how to teach people and learning how to um, facilitate a a good environment for learning. Um, I learned a lot of those those skills, but I I realized pretty smartly after being in the workforce, that if i had to have a job it really should be on boats at sea if it could be sailing brilliant but it shouldn't just be racing it's got to be for more than than just you know just a trophy It's got to be a purpose to it
1: so then how did you find yourself working for bruno trouble during that 2000 america's cup
0: uh just <laughs> so I, I had just gotten my my first skipper's ticket um literally a week, a week before Bruno called, I was sitting my exam. Uh, luckily, I passed. And uh, through a family connection, Bruno got my telephone number and said, Alistair, and, and, and his lovely thick French accent, um, setting up the media centre, I need someone that can help me find some boats and some skippers. So I was very green. <clears throat> I was 20, 20 years old. And <clears throat> the the legend of the... The French, well, the legend of the America's Cup, he is a phenomenal man, Bruno, larger than life. Um, yeah, took me under his wing and, um, you know, helped me make mistakes and, and then fix them. But yeah, we had a team of uh, about 10 skippers and six or seven boats for that first first Cup in New Zealand. Um yeah, but it was a great learning experience, and obviously that led me on to meeting Pippa. So I've, I do keep in touch with Bruno and Melanie, um, and Etienne as well. So yeah, big part of my life was the the Frenchies. Um, and w- when I went to help Etienne, it was uh, it was the, the getting his kids into sailing was the the, the motivating part of, of that job. Um, trying to trying to inspire a bit of love for sailing. Just you know, so they could understand a bit more about why Dad loved it so much.
1: Now you, you talked about how you went on the match racing circuit, um and you know, it probably wasn't as fulfilling as you'd maybe maybe hope. But you know, where where did your sailing kind of take you uh before you returned to New Zealand? Um, you know, I I've read somewhere that you were in Oman, you've talked about being an island, you know, Were they just opportunities? People calling you on your phone, or you sort them out?
0: Yeah, a a little bit of both. Um, uh, So uh, after two thousand and seven, I'm living on my parents' boat in. Oh, maybe a bit later. Two thousand eight must have been living on my parents' boat in West Haven illegally. Um, Just just come back from Europe and uh a, 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 an irish gentleman by the name of Andrew o'conning called me and said alistair i hear that um you're pretty good with youth development um I've, i'm the owner of the old green dragon i'm looking at putting an irish youth development team in the um would have been 10 11 volvo uh, would you like to come over and um see how it's going to work I, I, I thought wow this is all you know, racing, sailing, uh, bringing up a new group, being the underdogs, old boat. There's there's some cool cool challenges about this. I could be interested. So um, so this must have been oh nine. Sorry, I've got my dates wrong. Oh nine, because Sarah Jane was with me. We flew up to Ireland. We well, so we flew up to England. We loaded SJ's car with everything that we could. And we drove across to Ireland, and um, we were there three days. And uh, after spending, you know. Quitting our jobs and you know packing our lives up in New Zealand, there three days and um, Hander said, "Yeah, sorry mate, the, the money's all gone. It's not happening." Um, so that was you know I thought the beginning and end of my Volvo career. And uh, sitting at, at so we drive back to England and sitting at Pippa's house um, on the south coast of England, going, "What are we going to do now?" Uh, I, I find an advert uh, on on a on a sailing website for a coach for Oman Sale and I I knew um, Seb from from working with Alan Macarthur, so I called him up and said do you think I'm the right kind of person and he said I think you would be Alistair so I went over for a trial and yeah I spent the next 18 months as their offshore offshore keelboat coach uh, training up guys on the far 30s to get them good enough to get on board the uh, the big trimaran that I'm on and then the mod 70 um so yeah living in Oman for for the winter and training there and then taking the boys to Europe for the racing around um, France did a Tour de voile with them on the M34 which was a horrible boat and then yeah, french keelboat nationals and mainly around France a little bit on the solent in England um and then th- At at the end of that program, Ender from Ireland gets in touch again and says, um, uh, I need someone to run the Volvo 70. So it was another strange job where the government of Dubai sponsored the boat to sail a course around the world to promote their bid to host the World Trade Fair in 2020. So, yeah, Sarah-Jane and I... um, Got this uh, Volvo 70 and and chopped it and changed it a bit to make it a bit more reliable. Uh, we took the lifting propeller out of it. We put a fridge and freezer in it. Don't tell anybody. Um, and then sailed it on this uh, publicity tour from Ireland all the way to Australia via 22 ports um, in obscure countries. All as a billboard and, a, and, a, and an activation platform for the, the Dubai bid for the World Trade Fair. So that was a crazy job um hard work obviously being stuck between um uh an interesting character of an owner and the irishman and a, and a very um very uh tight contractual um sponsor like the government of dubai but uh, that was yeah, some great sailing Volvo 70 is an amazing boat um i wouldn't want to own one uh but we we had a phenomenal phenomenal trip <clears throat> But yeah, difficult working with um, different parties and getting everybody at, at sort of above you to um, be on the same sheet of music. Um, so yeah, it was that um, was Steinlager too coming back to New Zealand, which was the, the motivation to come back to the Sailing Trust. Um, William Goodfellow said at the end of that um, trip, "Well, mate, there's a job here for you if you want to get Steinlager into survey." So um, after after the trying to break into the Volvo world and trying to break into the well, maybe not break into, but you know, add some value and uh, steer some, some competitive sailing. It was a it was a, a, a real breath of fresh air to come back to the, the youth development and the, the historical side and, and my own personal connection with the, the Peter Blake story and Steinlager and Stein Lyon and, and, and the New Zealand Sailing Trust. They do really cool work. What was your role there? So I, I started, um, I was in New Zealand when Lion New Zealand was gifted to the New Zealand Sailing Trust and that would have been uh, 2008 or 9 and did a couple of races with her and I actually in 2009 did the Sydney Hobart on Lion with some of the original crew members kids. It was a, 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 a good fun race um, and yeah, it's my one and only Sydney, Sydney Hobart and I, I don't think I need to do another after that um so yeah i did the the two to three years in the the initial setup of the of the sailing trust and then when they got steinlager um and they were putting her into survey as a commercial yacht um that's i'm also i like engineering i like um boat building and yeah all of those processes so steinlager gave me the opportunity to work very closely with um ian cook and, and ydl and the, the fantastic team there um so yeah working with the sailing trust um it's certainly not as um, glamorous or as um adventure filled for myself personally as the stuff with blakey and seamaster but the reward i got out of it um seeing how many people it touched positively uh, yeah, that that's that. Those uh, twenty thirteen to twenty seventeen, that time with Steinlager and Lion, will, will go down for me as um, you know, getting the most out, giving the most back.
1: Did you find yourself uh, remembering some of those occasions with Peter and some of the ways he would do things and phrase things and and sort of take the lead and almost start implementing them in this? Into sailing trust um, program.
0: Oh, oh, definitely. I mean, uh, forever wading through old footage and uh, the log books. I've got every log entry Peter ever did uh, for the on the on the Seamaster Blake Expeditions project, and um, I still uh, pluck gems of, of 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 wisdom from his written word. Um, yeah, many, many times you're sitting there asking yourself the question, "What would Blakey do now?" And um, yeah, his, his method of leadership, which was so versatile because it was so changeable, you know, when when the decision demanded an autocratic leader, you got an autocratic leader. When the decision, when when the situation was probably you know less stressful or less you know um, time critical, it was very democratic. So. Learn, learning his style and the way he could adjust or adapt his style to a situation was all through the New Zealand Sailing Trust and the delivery of um, of an experience on one of his boats.
1: You just talk to me about those experiences. You know, what was the aim of the programme? And I guess what did you see in some of those uh, kids who came on the school groups on, on those uh, adventures?
0: Yeah, no, he was... Uh, Phenomenal, but the cross section of society that that utilised the the trust over my time there was 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 broad. Uh, probably thirty to forty percent of the trips were considered low decile, so funding was found from elsewhere to, to get the the participants on board, um, and then quite a lot of the the upper decile schools would come through as well, as long as well as uh, university students on on different courses and. I don't know. Was certainly for me the the participants that had had very or little or none experience of of boats or of the marine environment was seeing fear, you know, definite fear, turn into actually I can do this over the course of um, the program. Seeing someone outside their comfort zone working hard to solve a problem and at the other end of it um a sense of achievement and um uh, uh, yeah basically a, a a broadening of horizons and i felt that probably 60 65 of the people that came on board for, for more than one night left with that kind of um feeling with it they, they had surprised themselves you know where they they they'd achieved more than they thought they could and that we don't have enough of those experiences in our lives um, to to um, to do good. And the, the whole perceived risk: somebody that hasn't been sailing before gets on a maxi, um, a bigger, heavy old maxi. It, it can be very intimidating. Obviously, for me and for the crew, we, we should be completely at ease with it all, and um, you know that should be the standard. You know, we're not outside your comfort zone at all. But to see someone come from being outside go through the learning process and 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 own that learning and then you know use those skills to make the boat work it is a, a beautiful process to be part of and um and just be aware of just to see happen
1: and how much of a, a part of that week was environmental kind of awareness
0: i think any any good sailor you know, obviously, you have to have a, uh, uh, an innate uh, empathy with with your environment to make the boat go, um, and, and awareness of what's going on around you. Um, so, obviously, you know, there's the the statutes, the MARPOL rules, and everything that, that vessels must must come up to that standard, and their procedures you know can't can't fail any of those rules. Obviously that environmental message of you know there's no rubbish we don't you know there's no 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 degradation of the environment you know let's maintain it or improve it but it's also through that how we look after the boat how we look after each other on board and all of those subtle little life lessons if you if you've been sailing with a a good racing team it's just those subtle little things when someone's trying to get down the companionway The other person just moves that little bit out of the way to make their job easier. Those little subtle things about being aware of others and being aware of your environment is very easy to come to the fore on a boat. Um, And when you're, you know, living 25, 30 people inside that environment, um, the things that annoy people, making a mess, being loud, um, being, you know, rude, um, obviously any, any isms are just not tolerated. So it, it gives you this environment to um, you know remove the technology, remove the interference and focus on on the here and now and you know that is between the, the humans and between um, each human and, and its environment.
1: Now you mentioned uh, Sarah Jane uh, Sarah Jane is Sarah Jane Blake, Peter's daughter, so um It's quite the connection um there what how did that um how did you become i guess uh, romantically involved because you must have known each other um when peter was um was still alive and and met his family
0: yeah yeah no it was um uh, the first time i met i I met james first actually james is sarah jane's brother Uh, i taught him rock climbing at the gym i spoke about um, before i met anybody else and then met pippa and then uh, when we had seamaster in patagonia uh, pippa james and sarah jane came and joined for christmas so it was the first time i met sarah jane i was uh, 22 and sarah jane was 17 and i made a pass at her and she told me in no uncertain terms that she was not interested uh, she did not want a sailor um, especially not a kiwi sailor And obviously, uh, uh, she then joined the boat in in Buenos Aires and sailed up to Rio with us. Um, So we hang up again at at that time. And then after Peter's death, um, there were quite a few big reunions that that pulled the the crew together. And um, part of the the cathartic process was the next Christmas, uh, my family, mum and dad, and... And uh, Pippa and Sarah-Jane James and the Robinsons spent some time at Waiheke together. Um, and we would keep in touch, um, emails and things. And then I was living in London and Sarah-Jane was living down the road from me uh, with her boyfriend at the time. And uh, I got on well with him. Uh, my girlfriend got on well with her and we hung out a little bit in London. Uh, then in cows, She came across for the... Ladies Day at Cow's Week and I was working with Ellen MacArthur at that time getting a boat ready for the Barcelona World Race So we hung out there and then she came to New Zealand to help uh, Workshop E set up the, um, the Blue Water Black Magic ex- exhibition in the Maritime Museum and over that time I, I helped her out, I, you know, I helped her find a car and uh, Introduced it to some, some people and we were hanging out and I was actually in Europe at the time uh, and the the trust were getting Lion ready to do the New race, Auckland New And Sarah Jane had a month off where where she wasn't required at the museum before um, NZL 32 was put inside. So she said, um, oh, do you think I, sh- I should go traveling? And I said, I've got an idea. You should do some racing. You should get on your dad's old boat and race to New with me. And, uh, yeah, in the middle of this race, horrible, horrible conditions. Um, there's, I think we've got 22 people on board and 19 are down with with chronic seasickness. So there's only three of us sailing the boat, uh, myself, uh, Sarah-Jane and one other. And, yeah, in the middle of this storm, there was a look. And, yeah, from then on, we've, we've been together. It's, it's crazy. It took 10 years for me to convince her that I was a good option.
1: <laughs> what happened to no sailors, huh? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Now the pair of you have done a bit of cruising together, um, and I think in 2018 you set off on a journey. I think you were supposed to go to Europe, um, but you got what is it, Fiji and Tonga, and then you returned home. Um, so what happened there?
0: Yeah, so after the after finishing up
1: with the trust. Um, Sarah-Jane and I put
0: a lot of energy and effort into getting our old wooden sailing boat up to um, category one ready to go offshore and we had a plan to sail back to Europe, to sail back to to Pippa's house, um, to spend five or six years doing so um, the easy route through the Panama but upwind we were, you know, we, we didn't want to go through the Indian Ocean we wanted to stay where we felt it was safe and so we planned a route and um, and pushed off and basically got to Fiji, sorry, got to Tonga, relatively good passage, seven and a half days, Uh, went for a swim and noticed a whole bunch of really bad oxidization corrosion on the top of my keel. And it turned out after three months of searching that it was a a polarity issue with our anchor winch, but... uh, the electrician that installed everything in the boat found the problem in, in three seconds. But uh, not having him with us, uh, bouncing around uh, Tonga and Fiji with a boat that, whenever the battery, the house battery switch was turned on, meant that the, the keel was dissolving, was was a, a little bit um, nerve wracking. So um, we made the decision, actually, before we left Tonga, that, that we wouldn't continue, that we would finish the season up up in, in the south pacific and then come back to new zealand and rectify the faults with the boat um we realized that we'd probably been a bit naive thinking that we could do it without a water maker and um there was a couple of other things that we wanted to do so it was a shakedown and uh we came back and we got some some work with it with the old engineer from seamaster a good friend sean kelly his company was doing a hydrographic survey in Fiordland. So Sarah-Jane and I joined his, his vessel and, and helped out as the crew for, for our hydrographic survey that paid us good money to do the modifications to Darth Vader, good name for a boat, and um, get her hill ready to go. So um, yeah, as of end of March, we were
1: ready to push off.
0: Um, Obviously things have changed for everybody and um, new plans need to be made.
1: Darth Vader, so uh, how did that name come about? And you know, Do you get strange looks or people using lines out of Star Wars movies with you?
0: Definitely. It is very, very frequent that we get May the Force Be With You. Uh, the boat was launched in 1976 with that name. I think uh, the owner's son named the boat uh, a couple of weeks after the first Star Wars movie was released. And um, it stuck. Sarah Jane certainly considered changing the name of the boat when we got it. Um, obviously, there's um, a lot of folklore and superstition around that. Um, I'm, I'm a you know, i bit of popular culture. I like uh, Star Wars, so the name doesn't bother me. And and the longer we've owned the boat, we've now had it nearly ten years. It's um, it couldn't be anything else. It, you know, the boat is um, uh, hard and mean at times, just like its character.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it looks like you two have sort of played this uh, this story over a little bit more, and you've taken it to a almost to a new level um, because you've created a story around the adventures of Darth the Owl, played by you, and Stormy the Cat, played by Sarah Jane. I guess um, how do you feel about being known as the Dark Lord?
0: The dark, yeah, the the yeah, dark side sailing. There's all sorts of um, funniness that comes up around it. It was basically um, Sj invented the characters. To be able to tell the story of our travels uh, with a fictional bent, and um, you know, she's a, a mad fan of of rhyme and uh, of, um, you know, fairy tale, <clears throat> and the owl and the cat have, have always been one of her favourites. So, um, actually, what we're if we can't go off sailing around the world, we're, we'll we'll look to go off sailing around New Zealand and take the owl and the cat with us, and they'll they'll evolve and. And tell the stories. But, yeah, this owl gets very little um, creative license in any dialogue. It's all very well scripted. And um, he's, he's got to follow the script, if you know what I mean. Do
1: You just hoot every now and then.
0: <laughs> you got it. Yeah.
1: So, you know, is the ultimate plan still to do this world trip that you, you know, envisaged sort of 2017 and 18 and then you talked about trying to do it again this year? Is that the ultimate plan?
0: Well, it it certainly was up until about uh, a couple of months ago. Um, I think with what's going on in the world now, everybody's taking stock. Um, We're obviously very hard pressed to beat New Zealand. New Zealand is a phenomenal place. We're so fortunate. Um, Good leadership, um, strong, strong sense of values. There's a big world out there that I, I still feel needs exploring, and and cultures visiting, and other people's uh, takes on life um, to be explored. But yeah, with with the volatility and and the potential to become a burden um, on somebody else's um, you know infrastructure, it, 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 a lot of the the romance is gone. Um, if things settle down, if 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 a vaccine is created, if, there's a lot of ifs. Um, so at this stage, we're not going anywhere in the next year. Um, we will have to get to England at some stage soon because James is getting married, but that's all up in the year as well. So I would like to think, um, after the cup, we have to be around for that. Well, um, that's one benefit from not going off to Tahiti in, in Auckland for the cup. But we'll uh, hopefully smartly after that maybe do a lap of the North Island or maybe not even that maybe just up around to the Hokianga have an explore of the harbors. I haven't been to yet. Are you
1: working as well?
0: B- bits and pieces um, uh, My friend Sean Kelly with Pacific 7 out of Tauranga runs these commercial boats So I've told him as, as long as it's not oil work and as long as it's not um, You know taking from from the planet. I'll help him out I'm also helping with uh, uh, the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron uh, Marshall Program, uh, coaching up the marshals to to look after uh, crowd safety during the Cup, um, and yeah, Andre and the New Zealand Sailing Trust, Paul Powney, they keep me involved there with bits and pieces. Um, just you know, if if they if they're getting tired, they need someone in to, to add some some energy. Um, I'll I'll jump in there. Uh, we're very fortunate that our tenants, um, we've got a small house on Waikiki and our tenants um are, are very keen to stay to, to stay so living on the boat over winter we never planned to do that but um oh, it's it's um we do like our our little wooden cave that we climb inside turn the heater on <laughs>
1: And get the lightsabers out every now and then. Too. Yeah, uh, and occasionally. Mm. Occasionally a bit of dress-up. Mm. Um, quite a lot of people do go cruising, don't they? So, But not all sort of go offshore, you know? They're not all as brave as and, and adventurous as you. But you know, what would you say, I guess, to anyone contemplating doing this, uh, assuming that we're in a non-COVID world?
0: Yeah, the, the non-COVID world, I find the, one of the most rewarding things, you know, per, uh, you know personal kind of thing, for me is that that um, gaining that new horizon, crossing crossing an ocean and, and getting to your destination by sail is um, for me personally one of the most rewarding things I can do. Um, it's never something to be taken lightly. Obviously it's that whole thing of preparation, preparation, preparation. The boat has to be ready. You have to know your boat. Um, and what but but in saying that if you can sail around New Zealand you'll see Worse weather and worse sea conditions doing that than you would in your average passage from here to the islands um, We are spo- spoiled for our training ground. New Zealand can offer so much um, a, a calm sea never created a, a great sailor um, We are fortunate with testing conditions uh, changeable conditions and seasons that 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 really affect how strong the wind is and things like that um, Yeah, so a little bit of you know, yes, I'm very disappointed that I'm, I'm not pushing off on my my big adventure but Equally well, maybe not equally but the the the, the flip side to that is New Zealand I feel I know quite well, but I'm, I'm sure I can go sailing here for another Five years and not anchor in the same bay again. If you know what I mean. If I was to put my mind to it.
1: And what, what are sort of other advice might you have for someone who's like-minded? You know, they're into sailing or boating, and but maybe not the racing side of things. And how they can be, still be sort of involved in, in the marine industry or boating industry somehow. You know, what what would you say to someone who's, who's sort of contemplating a, a direction like that?
0: Well, yeah, I think if you, if you look at Numbers, you know, if, if there's more people that go sailing and boating for recreation than there are that go competitively racing, I think you, I, I may be wrong here, but my gut feeling is more people out on the water for recreation than than competitiveness, which means that there's probably more opportunity for a career that isn't competitive, uh, that doesn't rely on on you know winning a race to 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 feel the 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 thrill of success um obviously there's the the super yacht world and and there's becoming bigger and bigger with um, expedition type vessels and and owners wanting to do to go off the beaten track um there are the the expedition companies like quark who are always looking for um for people who have the gift of the gab and can hold the attention of of, of guests while they do their have high latitude exploration um it's, it's, it's pretty mellow as far as um energy level goes but they go to some far out places with some cool big old ships um there's also you know companies or or, or organizations like uh niwa uh, and um fishing game um obviously less sailing more power boating um but uh, I think there is a space in the commercial workboat world um, especially as um, as diesel becomes a no-no and um, and we're looking for you know greener softer less less invasive methods of transport on the sea I can see a modern sailing workboat or hybrid um, electric sail powered um, vessel coming online anytime soon and that's going to necessitate more people with sailing skill now you imagine going to going to work as a sailor to transport goods or or move people now with with the use of sails something that hasn't really been done commercially
1: for hundred hundred and fifty 150 years so where do you see yourself in this whole big plan of the world you know in the next sort of 10 20 years where where do you what's your plan
0: yeah well it's interesting um uh, the world that sj sarah jane has has shown to me is something that i never ever thought i'd get involved in and that's um theater and performing art i'm i'm not a natural i i don't like being um sort of in, in front and and i don't consider myself an entertainer uh, but just to see the uh, sj's work and the effect it has it is very similar i see her get a similar kick when a person gets the show or understands the message similar to how I was with uh, the New Zealand Sailing Trust and, and delivering those outdoor education sailing experiences to to novices. Um, so SJ is offering me if, if we go down this path of storytelling more focusing on the storytelling and the fantasy and wonderment there is that 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 route there obviously it would be nautical and would be on a boat doing it um, to, to, to fulfill my um, my requirement of, of playing boats uh, so that that's one avenue um if it if it, if it can um, get the the critical mass it requires to to maintain itself and and then the, the other thing is the idea I was speaking about before uh, the the potential for Sailing to become commercially viable again. Um, you know It's it's not too much of a stretch to imagine a cargo ship sailing on foils. Is it i'm not sure It's uh, worth exploring isn't it <laughs> Yeah, yeah, let's well, get you know, come on that's what that's what life's about Exploring
1: well, that's what peter blake would say wouldn't he He'd push the boundaries a little bit
0: Exactly knock on the door. Mm.
1: Do you you kind of sometimes think about what you might have been able to achieve if Peter was still alive?
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. He was so far ahead of the program. Um, You think about it the day before he died There was over a million hits on the website and in today's numbers. That's nothing But that was 2001 the internet was pretty new back then So for a million people off their own back to be typing that in He was getting pretty close to um, you know, this this critical mass number where the thing would have taken off and its message would have been Pushed around the world by its supporters more so than than its instigator Um, unfortunately, that didn't happen peter was taken too soon and without his leadership and experience and connections we lost, uh, 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 we lost the ability to, for that mouthpiece to have an effect. Potentially, you know, ten years ago, as it were.
1: There are others who are kind of trying to move into that space, and and um, you know, Peter Burling and Blair Chook for example, have set up their own environmental charity. Do you kind of see similarity, some similarities, you know, in people like them as what you saw in Peter Blake?
0: Uh, definite similarities um, Yeah, the, I know both the the, the lads reasonably well in their um, consummate professionals uh, But I think it was the the Volvo experience that opened their eyes to not only how big the place is and how wonderful it is but in in their potential for for, for making a change of um, They've got the attention of a lot of people. Um, they're, they're very good role models. Uh, obviously, you, know, you can't take anything away from their sailing. They're, they're next level with their, um, their their total package, you know, tactically, um, you know, meteorologically and, and uh, technique in a, in a league of their own. Uh, but to see the social conscience come through, it's inspiring and um it shows they're they're about more than just winning yacht races
1: maybe they'll get a boat and go down to Antarctica and do some stuff like uh you were doing 20 years ago
0: yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I've, I've certainly you know certainly hear rumors and, and and great ideas i think these guys have got a little bit more of a competitive life left before they go off exploring um they've got that they've got we've got one one important date that they've got to sort out all right once they've got that one under the under the belt, we can discuss the next
1: one. <laughs> yeah, but it never stops with those two, is it? It's the no. Olympics, if they go ahead uh, following that and whether they go back and do another ocean race, who knows? Exactly, mm. exactly. Um, I, I guess just finally, you know, what more do we need to do as, you know, yachties, boaties and and even people um, when it comes to, I guess, you know, the environment and what, you know, you and, and Peter were sort of uh, talking about, Twenty years ago.
0: Yeah, I guess you know those, those, those wonderful sort of uh, sun, sun going, sunsetting setting moments, sitting on a deck, discussing the world, usually around a game of Scrabble. Uh, Pete would ask those kind of questions, and my answer back then, and it is the same now, is empathy, more empathy, the ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. <clears throat> um, that if you've got empathy for your environment and empathy for your, um, for your community. Um, we, you know, it's, it's, it's less us and them. It's, it's, it less less, sort of you know, it's less about the individual and more about the, the commonality because from my experience, you know, playing boats all over the world and, and if, from rich countries to poor countries, we are, it doesn't matter what color you are. We are far more similar than we are different. You know, everybody has far more similarities and wants and desires and they all, you know, within cooey of each other. So if you can have that empathy and respect for other people and your environment, it's so basic, it sounds so simple. And you know, people obviously have brain and gumboot moments when, you know, they don't think about others and they don't think about their environment and the lolly wrapper gets sucked out the car window or, um, you know. You flip a bird, flip the finger at someone in the in the traffic because you've got a bit of road rage it's it's about you know catching yourself before it gets to that point you know not letting the the rubbish blow around of the car and and having a deep breath before you, you mouth off at someone or, or react to a situation that <clears throat> is just that you know a rush of blood to the head rather than a, a considered think about it then act
1: wise words. Um, before I let you go, obviously I need to ask you your um, worst wipeout ever. So take it away.
0: Worst wipeout ever. Uh, <clears throat> the second keel boat that I had was a boat called Disorderly Behavior. This is a 24-footer, strip plank cedar uh, hull with glass and Kevlar in the hull, and an, <clears throat> an A-rig out of an 18-foot skiff. I had four guys on trapeze. Um, and I had a 180 kilo bowl at about uh, 2.6 meters draft. So it was, you know, it was before the sports boats. It was a crazy little thing. And our first season, which would have been 94, 95, yes, yeah, the year we won the cup, 95. No, no viaduct. Um, a winter series race. We had um, we had two Jenikas, <clears throat> a small one and a big one. <clears throat> it was a proper southwester buster, 35. Plus, and we we set the big kite with a reef in the main. Obviously, no instruments on the boat. But from the start line off the squadron to Compass Dolphin off uh, Mechanics Bay, we did in nine and a half minutes, which averages at about 18 knots, um, just off Compass Dolphin, the outer laminate on the rudder let go. The rudder... Did this horrible soaring motion and sound and with with this was you know four guys on trapeze I'm the only person sitting in board on the tiller the rudder just implodes disappears off the back of the boat below the stock and Probably at, at, a, at a good 24 knots the boat just dials out into a, a Wicked brooch and all three sorry all four of the guys on the trapeze, oh, three of the guys on the trapeze Don't let go in time and get shot clear of the rig well, past the rig, the clever guy, funnily enough, Dan Slater, dropped off to windward before it all happened. So, yeah, that was it. Was spectacular um, on a boat that I'd built, well, mostly built myself. Certainly, I built the rudder, so that was um, yeah, unidirectional cloth. You need a little bit of, uh, of double bias and, and a rudder to stop that um, harmonic because
1: <laughs> you shout shouting the bar afterwards. I'm imagining,
0: oh, damn, yeah, after the Coast Guard tow home, it was you're right.
1: Well, um, Alastair Moore, thank you so much for joining us on on Broadreach Radio. It's been a really interesting insight, uh, I guess, into not only your um, life, your career, uh, but also there and, you know, in the work of Sir Peter Blake and Blake Expeditions and and the ongoing, I guess, environmental work of of the organisations like uh, New Zealand Sailing Trust. So um, thank you so much for joining us and and sort of uh, letting letting us explore those um, topics.
0: Hey, no worries. It's been a pleasure, and um, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Broadreach is a brilliant. Listen.
1: Well, that's it for another episode of Broadreach Radio. Thanks for tuning in. If you've got any feedback, then you can email me at michaelb@yachtingnz.org.nz. Otherwise, I'll catch you with the next episode in a fortnight. Take care.